This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The big news, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau yesterday was found by the Ethics Commissioner to have broken conflict of interest laws when he went on his trip last Christmas uh, to the Aga Khan's Island with family and friends. That's improperly accepting a gift. Uh, the Prime Minister had this response when asked. Obviously, my office and I will be behaving in a more uh, uh, proactive way on uh, personal vacations. Uh, but at the same time, I think uh, we can all collectively be reassured that uh, we have mechanisms in our institutions here that uh, hold everyone to account to make sure that everyone follows the rules. Uh, okay, nice little dance, I suppose. Uh, Tim Harper writes about this. Uh, Tim, of course, freelance writer and editor. Uh, his piece in the Toronto Star today, an ethics breach that should stick to Justin Trudeau, and uh, he, Jim, Tim joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. How are you doing this morning, Tim? I'm good, Bill. How are you? Good. Uh, th- there's uh, an awful lot of, of angles to, to this whole thing. Uh, I don't think anybody was totally surprised by the ruling of the Ethics Commissioner, were they? I was. Uh, really? To be honest with you, she doesn't have a history of, uh, of bringing down hard and firm uh, rulings. Uh, this was her uh, swan song. She's leaving the post, and she went out with a bang, but, you know, she's got to be honest, in the past, she's always seemed to find uh, loopholes to allow politicians to do things that maybe they shouldn't have done. So I, I thought this was uh, uncharacteristic of her, although was I surprised on the surface, uh, knowing the, the facts, as we all did, and this has unfurled over a year, um, you would have thought this was a slam-dunk case, but with the uh, with Mary Dawson, uh, sometimes a slam-dunk uh, it's the rim. So. <laughs> she can still find rim anywhere. No, yeah, nothing found, but net. She found some net this time. Yeah, I was I, I was maybe not quite as, as shocked, uh, but I'll tell you why. Because I, she really got wrecked over the coals about the Morneau circumstance, and and I thought, well, maybe she's going to tighten the screws a little bit. Of course, I, I see your point too. Why would she bother now after the number of years where she hasn't done it? Well, one of my colleagues, uh, John Iverson at the yeah. National Post, wrote today it was almost as if she. Uh, let go of uh, years of pent up frustration. <laughs> she was heading out the door. Enough of this, because she really did. Kinda, she came down hard on the prime minister. Well, and and I think rightly so. I mean, let's let's go over this. You talk about this in in the, your piece in the Star today. That uh, and and I made uh, some points in my commentary uh, that from uh, on our blog today. What I what I can't understand here, Tim, is. This guy is not a political rookie. He understands exactly what's going on. I mean, his comment that we just ran there, that, well, there are rules in place. Well, there were rules in place last year when he did this, and he didn't seem to pay any attention to them. It's hard for me to uh, fathom that this was just a uh, lack of political instinct. Uh, you're, you're right. This this prime minister was born into the world of politics. Um, I think it's more likely, uh, as both uh, opposition leaders, Andrew Scheer and Jagmeet Singh, had put it, that uh, the Prime Minister sometimes thinks there's a set of rules uh, for him and his friends and uh, another set of rules uh, uh, for uh, the middle class that he purports to champion. And um, he sometimes, I guess, loses sight of the fact that, uh, you know, there are consequences to his actions. That's the, that's the only thing I, can't, I can uh, take from this is that he sometimes just loses touch with... Um, um, how he has to play by the rules, um, because I don't buy that this was a, um, um, a lapse in political instincts, because uh, generally speaking, he has excellent political instincts. When it comes to things uh, political and, and, and policy and things of this nature, but not only was he raised in a political family, though, Tim, he saw the dark underbelly of, of what can happen in that circumstance. Both his mother and father uh, with a ridic- point of ridicule, uh, a topic of ridicule, time and time again for different yeah. things. Sometimes deserved, sometimes not deserved, but it was there nonetheless, and he witnessed it. And you would think somebody that was in, raised in that environment would be extra cautious to make sure that you don't jump into the fire. Yeah, you would. Although, on the other hand, this, he and this government uh, have led quite a charmed life, uh, in my view, uh, over the first half of his mandate. Uh, and perhaps, you know, he, he gets maybe a little hubris. I'm just speculating here, but maybe it's a little bit of hubris that he's untouchable. That, you know, when you look around, uh, they, they win they win by-elections and nothing seems to dent their popularity. Um, he probably could look around and, and look at what the opposition has to offer and think that he's uh, bulletproof uh, and, and doesn't think things like this totally uh, through. But this was... this would be a terrible rookie mistake. He's not a rookie. You know, with Bill Morneau and, and some of his ethical uh, challenges, 
Uh, you can write it off to while he's not a he's not a politician. He's he's a businessman and he's a rookie and he made some mistakes and he's trying to fix them. But Justin Trudeau is hardly a political rookie. And that's why it makes it so much more amazing that this is actually going on. And uh, but your point uh, in, that you wrote about in the piece in, today in the Star, uh, I think, is well taken too. That he just seems no matter what happens, even the more no thing that we've talked about, which is probably one of the big news stories of the year here in Canada. Uh, doesn't seem to have dented the liberal popularity, but if you look at the last Nanos poll, it has dented his popularity. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I'll, I'll give you that. But uh, I, I think that uh, this government has been given an awfully long leash uh, by the Canadian electorate. Uh, I think the, the view out there is, uh, you know, we elected you in 2015. Don't do anything stupid. Um, you know, we've got our lives to lead. Uh, don't uh, hurt me. And we'll uh, look look at you again in 2019. You know, those of us, uh, you know, I'm not in the Ottawa bubble, but, you know, I, I, I plead guilty to writing some bubble stuff from, from time to time. It's almost like voters in by-elections and, and in polling data are given the finger to, um, you know, journalists who are chronicling some of the missteps of this government, saying they don't care um, that this is, you know, small potatoes and stuff that, doesn't lift out of the uh, the Ottawa corridor. Uh, it doesn't play across the country. There may be some truth to that, but in my view, uh, as you point out in the column today, I think this is something that should stick. Will it stick? I don't know. Um, he got a bit of a break, no doubt. Um, we're in the Christmas rush, and the House isn't sitting again for uh, more than a month. So in that respect, uh, Mary Dawson did him a, a, a bit of a favor because he doesn't have to face questions in the House of Commons, um, and uh, the House doesn't come back till the end of January. So whether it sticks or not, we'll have to see. I think it should, but I'm not sure it will. And and Dawson was actually quite uh, direct in, in, in her comments. First of all, of course, as you say, she did lambaste him, but she did make a point of suggesting that he didn't do anything illegal. Uh, it was a breach of the ethics law, but uh, and of course there's no penalty for this either. So. Uh, I guess they're banking on the fact, like they have with so many other stories, Tim, that this is going to be a, like a 48-hour news cycle, and then we're going to get on with Christmas and on with our lives. Well, you know, I remember, um, I think we even talked about it, how the opposition was going to bring Helen Brimstone uh, down uh, over the Omar Cotter uh, settlement. Uh, I argued that by the time the House came back in September, this thing would be forgotten. Um, it was. And, you know, there are short memories out there. Uh, but, you know, I think the larger question, Bill, is not these ethical violations, although he is the first sitting prime minister to be found in breach of uh, uh, of the uh, Ethics uh, Act. Uh, I mean, that in itself should write some pretty nice uh, attack ads in 2019. But I think the bigger question is that he seems to be uh, uh, increasingly out of touch with the middle class that he, he claims to be championing, because uh, some of the, uh, you know, there's an elitist bent to him and this government. You know, the cash for access, uh, where if you had enough money, you could pro- privately lobby him and cabinet ministers at private uh, homes. A great fundraising tool, but you had to pay up to $1,500 uh, to get in. Um, there's, you know, pr- private jet, private island, um, you know, living a, a Christmas break holiday that, you know, likely none of your listeners, uh, certainly not me, could ever afford. Um, and, he, and he got it for free. There's, there's just a sense of entitlement there. But they've got to be very, very careful because this plays to um, uh, Andrew Shears kind of, ah, shucks, you know, I'm just the uh, suburban dad wearing the, the dad jeans. And, uh, you know, we, we, go to, uh, we go to Kelsey's Roadhouse for dinner or something like that. You know, the, he's trying to play... The everyman, the suburban dad, uh, uh, versus the uh, elite, out of touch prime minister, and, and Trudeau keeps giving him ammunition. Well, that's the whole thing as far as what happened uh, yesterday. This is red meat for for Andrew Scheer, and to, I guess to a lesser extent for Jagmeet Singh. But it, it 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 plays right into the narrative that they're trying to get out there right now that this guy is thinks he's above everybody else. Yeah, sure, and and there's a there's always been a sense of liberal entitlement, and you know, don't forget this is a the Prime Minister uh, came in in 2015 playing this uh, hope and inspiration and a new dawn kind of uh, card, you know, the same kind of uh, campaign that Barack Obama used in, in 2008 to become the U.S. president. He was going to do things differently than the Harper government. 
uh, and uh, he was going to be transparent. He was going to be accountable. This holiday trip uh, didn't even come to light, be- except by some dogged reporting by uh, journalists in Ottawa. Um, that's the only reason anybody even knew about it. He wanted to keep it secret, um, and he was very reluctant to uh, uh, reveal any details about it in the House. And he, and I'm not sure that I, I thought he was all that contrite uh, in that apology yesterday either. Uh, he kept claiming uh, that the Aga Khan was a close personal friend and that he just needed some private time for his family. But, you know, as Mary Dawson points out, it was quite an unrequited friendship because Trudeau, uh, 1983, which would have made him, what, like 11 years old or something like that, um, was with the family on the the, uh, Greek islands for a holiday with his father and his family, and there was no contact with the Aga Khan at all again for uh, for 30 years, except uh, uh, at uh, Pierre Trudeau's funeral. Yeah, so, until he, until he, Justin he, Trudeau became prime minister. Yeah, so he can't he can't claim a personal friendship uh, because there is a provision in there that he's allowed to receive gifts from close friends or relatives. Uh, you know, that's, it's kind of ridiculous to plead uh, personal friendship with somebody that you went 30 years without uh, any personal contact. And as you point out, well, all of a sudden, after he became the liberal leader uh, and had, you know, some power and uh, a possibility of, of ascending to prime minister, then all of a sudden uh, the Aga Khan and him uh, were, were hitting it off like uh, like never before again. So, you know, it, it's quite clear that it wasn't the personal friendship. It was uh, Justin Trudeau's proximity to power. You know, I spent nine years on city council here in Hamilton, and, and I remember a conversation when I first got elected, Tim, from uh, somebody who had been in the business of the politic business for a long, long time, and the best piece of advice I got from him had to do with this whole idea. I mean, you, you swear an oath, obviously, about malfeasance and all this sort of stuff, but he says even the perception of, of doing something wrong is going to kill you because that's what people are going to jump on. And a guy that's got the political experience and the political DNA that he does had to know that. And and that's why I think what the the point that you're making in the article today is, is I think, well-founded, is that, look, at he knows damn well that this was wrong, and he just thumbed his nose and said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, well, he did. He thumbed his nose twice, uh, and, and his wife, uh, Sophie Gregoire, actually seemed to be the uh, the one pushing for these invitations. She went uh, uh, with a friend and her family without the Prime Minister uh, a third time. But it, this is dated now, but there used to be a, a rule uh, among politicians that I, I knew in Ottawa. Before you did something, think of how it would look if it showed up on the front page of the Globe and Mail. Yeah, exactly. Star, right? You know, the, the, the sniff test. Yeah. So uh, he had, and this, this was just out and out, um, he had to know that this wasn't right. I can't, I can't buy any explanation that other than he just decided to do it anyways. Uh, um, and he kept talking yesterday about family time and need for family time. Well, you know, he's getting some family time this year in the in the Rockies. Uh, <laughs> he's he's going to miss his old buddy at Christmas this year. Uh, but uh, the instinct... Uh, I get back to my point. It wasn't a lapse of political instincts. He had to know that you can't accept uh, holidays on a private island, uh, getting over there with a private helicopter ride from somebody who is uh, lobbying the prime minister's office, who receives money from the government, uh, who's seeking more money from the government. It's just, uh, it, it just, uh, it's too much for me to believe that he didn't think that this was going to be a problem. But the old cliche, those who do not learn from history are bound to repeat it. Yeah. Uh, we've seen this happen. We saw this happen in 2005 with the sponsorship scandal that happened in Quebec and, and the Gomery Inquiry. And, and and let's face it, I think Jean Chrétien was pretty arrogant in the last little while that he was in office because no matter what he did, the other guys weren't organized and he could just coast to victory as he did for so many elections. <laughs> but it finally catches up with it. Eventually people say, look, enough is enough. And and he's not there yet, but he's going down that road, and he's he he better open his eyes to the reality of what might happen. Well, you know, it just, it just makes it tougher and tougher for him to get up as he does and talk about how hard uh, his government is working to better the uh, the lot of the middle class and those struggling to get there because he seems um, orbits away from the middle class, and you're right that perception sticks. Um, 
although, you know, he's smart enough. He's going to do a, a series of town halls and in January to, you know, get to know the, the voters again and get out of the bubble, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he, he's got lots of time to repair this, but um, he is just showing himself how, uh, showing himself to be so far away from the middle class that that argument uh, just isn't going to work anymore. They, they're going to have to come up with better talking points in 2018 because he can't get up in the House of Commons and talk about, um, you know, working on behalf of the middle class. Uh, Andrew Shearer will get up and, uh, and, and blow him away uh, with this elitist attitude uh, and this perception that, that we're talking about now. Great piece in the Star today, an ethics breach that should stick to Justin Trudeau. Tim Harper, of course, the author. Uh, Tim, thanks as always, and uh, thanks for all the uh, the great help and uh, uh, the guest shots here for the last year or so. It's been a pleasure talking with you. We'll uh, hook up again in the new year, I'm sure. Well, it's always good to talk to you, Bill, and uh, happy holidays to you and your listeners. You And right back at you. Thanks again, thanks. Tim. Tim Harper, of course, freelance writer and editor. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's time for the Mayor's Town Hall. Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring is in studio with us and uh, will be for the entire hour. Good morning. Good to see you again, Mr. Mayor. It's good to be here, Bill. Thank you. We were in your fair city just a couple of days ago, dinner at the uh, Water Street Cookery. Okay. Uh, That's a great place. I I just love it. hadn't been there for a while. Of course, it's upstairs by Emma's uh, back porch. Uh, and that's a historic place. We're talking about the the history of that place, and uh, not the cookery necessarily, but I mean the estaminet. That, exactly. That's a place where for generations people used to go because of that fabulous view. For generations, it was a stopping point when people are uh, traveling on the old Highway 2 yep. uh, decades ago or generations ago. And in fact, Joe Clark was there when his government um, lost a, a, Is that a right? conference vote. He didn't was know that. He was there uh, speaking at a Chamber of Commerce event. And, uh, he oh, by the way, had Mr. To, Prime Minister. <laughs> he had to rush back to Ottawa. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, and, and, of course, the history of that building, uh, a great place. Uh, I mean, even go back to the eras of the big band days. I mean, uh, some of the greatest names in music used to play there. It was a, it was a real hot spot. Oh, it was a real hot spot. And the Estaminé was, uh, was known um, region-wide as a great place uh, for dinner. And Emma's, of course, has its own tradition in the Water Street Cooker. Um, right on the waterfront, old buildings. Um, it really has a great ambiance, and of course, in the summertime, it's fantastic. Uh, Emma's patio. There's no better patio in the city of Burlington. Uh, well, maybe not anywhere else. I mean, it's just one of the great places to hang out. By the way, when we were there, I got a chance to actually look at some of the construction that you've been talking to us about and some of the plans. Uh, things are really humming down by the waterfront. Well, there's the Bridgewater Development, which yeah. is uh, being constructed right on the waterfront, right beside the Waterfront Hotel, and in between the Ascot, Old Ascot Motel, which is right to the um, west of the Water Street Cooker in Emma's. Um, so right in between in there is the, the Bridgewater Development, which eventually will be a 22-story building uh, with an eight-story Marriott Autograph Hotel. And be- behind the hotel will be another seven-story condominium building. Uh, so there's two cranes on that particular property. And then, of course, there's a crane up at uh, uh, the Berkeley is being constructed, which is just south of Caroline, just north of Maria. In between Elizabeth and John Streets, there's the Berkeley uh, development that's underway that will be a 17-story condominium and eventually a four-story parking garage and a six-story medical building. By the way, we went down Brant Street uh, in, by City Hall when we right. were uh, heading down to the waterfront for our dinner that night and uh, just happened to hit a red light right in front of City Hall, so we had a chance to, to look around for a second. And uh, that corner is not, I, I, the high rise, I, it just doesn't fit. I'm sorry. I, I love the streetscape there. It's beautiful what's happened, and I understand about infill and everything. But it just, it, it's, I don't know how they're going to develop this thing, but just the size of it itself just seems rather incongruous for what you've got there. Yeah, no, I understand My opinion. That. My know, opinion. I, I, I hear you, Bill, and you're not alone in that particular yeah. opinion. I've heard it from, uh, from many residents. Um, you know, as you know, we council voted on that particular development, and staff recommended a 23-story building, and council did pass that. Uh, five to two, so the building will be constructed. Uh, I was one of the ones that did not uh, support it. In our proposed new official plan for downtown, 17 stories was the number that was presented. And based on that, I could support uh, 17. Uh, The existing official plan says 12 stories. And um, staff would basically say all they did was take the 12 story as of right, which would be a much wider and, and squatter building, and narrow it up and make it much leaner. So they basically took all the gross floor area that would be allowed in a 12-story building that would be right out to, uh, that would take away a lot of the sidewalk or would not allow any new amount of sidewalk 
and uh, and squish it up into a tall, leaner building. So there'll be a two-story podium, and then up to 18 stories will be a much narrower building. Then on top of the last four or five stories, it'll be much narrower again. So I believe it will look very nice when it's done, but I do understand the sentiment uh, from people um, not supporting it. And I understand <clears throat> that obviously some folks think, well, you know, the city should have stuck to their guns on this. But the reality is, had you gone that way, and said, no, these guys probably would have gone to the OMB and probably would have won, simply because of the government's policies about infill, et cetera. So it's, it's a losing proposition. And it, the thing that I didn't like about this, and I've seen it happen in other decisions in Hamilton and in Burlington, where they don't always take in the character of the state. They just simply look at their policy about infill and other things and say, well, yeah, that fits, so you're gonna, you, you've got to let them do that. So it's got to be a frustrating exercise for you. Well, it certainly was for me because, I, as I said, I didn't vote for it. But as yeah. mayor, I certainly have to speak and, and respect the decision yeah, of, yeah. of the majority of council. We have a representative democracy, and uh, council's been elected to, to represent uh, residents and, and make decisions on behalf of the people that, that elect us. So a decision was made, and I have to respect it. And uh, I'm sure once it's finished, it, it won't have the, uh, the negative impact that s- some people might say it will have. Well, it'll be there, and we'll see what happens as the construction starts on that. Listen, i got to ask you something else. Uh, Burnley Mayor Rick Goldwing with us. Uh, in the last segment, uh, Mr. Mayor, we were talking with John Best from the Bay Observer uh, about public transit and about GO Transit specifically and, and the frustration that we're feeling here in Hamilton about the promise about all-day GO service, and it just doesn't seem to be happening as quickly as we want to see it happen. Uh, but I'd like to get your comment about how important public transit and GO is to city building and city development, because this is very much in, in keeping with what you've been talking about, about council's long-term plan for what's going to be happening around those GO stations. It, it's a big deal. It, it is a big deal, and we are fortunate that we do have three GO stations in the city of Burlington, and currently we have all-day service, uh, certainly peak service, then half-hour service the rest of the time. And within, <clears throat> I believe it's seven years from now, we will have 15-minute all-day service. So I actually listened to the dialogue you had with John Best this morning, uh, Bill, on, on your show, and I understand the, the, the frustration because GO is a great asset, and when you have the all-day service, it does take cars off the road, and it does, does provide a much more um, enjoyable experience as far as getting to downtown Toronto Well, when you, uh, go, when you have meetings with AMO, where, I, how I, do you I, get there? I took the train on uh, Tuesday morning to have See? a meeting down at Queen's Park, and uh, uh, and it would make it much easier when it's 15-minute service. But we've recognized that. We've decided to recognize the, the GO stations in our community as, a, as an opportunity. And the, and the Metrolink's big move plan, they've already designated uh, downtown as an anchor hub and the Burlington GO area as a, as a gateway hub. And we've recognized Appleby and Aldershot as mobility hubs as well, meaning that we want to see lots of development on those areas. We want to create those mixed-use, walkable, uh, transit-supportive uh, development uh, that gives people the opportunity to live car-free. And when you have all-day transit that's going 15 minutes, or, or regular service every 15 minutes, and when you have the major uh, transit route in Burlington, Plains Road, Fairview, having every 15-minute service, uh, and you have a car-share program, but more importantly, you have lots of new development and new public-type development and commercial development along with the residential development, we do create that possibility to lower our carbon footprint dramatically and have a much more healthier lifestyle for people to have that more urban lifestyle in close proximity to major transit. No, GO is a great asset uh, to us, and uh, uh, and I hope uh, for our benefit, uh, not just Hamilton's benefit, but for the benefit of the Bay Area that we'll get that all-day service right into downtown Hamilton uh, because it's critical for the connection of the greater Toronto-Hamilton area. But it's, it's a planning tool. Uh, and, it is and a you've planning seen tool. That, you've talked about hubs. I mean, we've yeah. talked about, for instance, how they've used the, uh, the, the the subway system in Toronto to do that. And anybody that's been along the Bloor line can see the development that's happened there. Everywhere there's a, a, a station, you see a, a lot of residential growth and a lot of commercial growth. And you've planned for that now in Burlington because of the of that designation. Now, those, those GO stations are all development hubs for you. No, no abs- absolutely. But I, I have to say, though, there's nothing, nothing simple or easy about about it because we're, we're redeveloping in areas that already have development to some degree. Mm-hmm. And it is not simple or easy. We've, we are in the process of uh, finalizing our official plan, which should be for April. And then in June, we will finalize area-specific plans 
uh, for our mobility hubs. And then, of course, we have to get a zoning bylaw and we have to have an implementation plan of how we coordinate the tremendous amount of development interest that is that is perking up now that we do not have um, ad hoc development that is done in a coordinated way. So uh, we've got lots of work to do and lots of work to do with the region of Halton as well to make sure we have the right infrastructure uh, for these areas because in order to, uh, to grow, we need water, we need wastewater, we need electricity. The electricity is, is not the issue, but certainly the water and, and wastewater infrastructure is critically important. So we will be working with uh, the region of Halton uh, as well as our own staff to make sure that uh, this develops the way it should. What about autonomy? Uh, it was one of the points John Best brought up when we had the discussion last hour, Mr. Mayor, about how much input cities should have into this. Uh, and you uh, juxtapose that against what we think seems to be the, anyway, the province's idea to, to have a master plan for this. And, and that's go, I get that. And then there's going to be internal public transit. But th- there has to be some sort of a coordinated plan if you want to have that service that's going to run from Oshawa all the way down to Niagara Falls. Uh, it's the, the, they've, somebody's got to take over and be the quarterback here, and that should be the provincial government. No, a- absolutely. But, uh, you know, my understanding is, and I, and I heard you this morning talking with John, uh, my understanding is that Pinch Point and Bayview area uh, where, yeah. where CN needs access for freight, and there's a Pinch Point there where there's not enough capacity to allow all-day go service right now. So that's the issue. I'm not sure how that's going to be addressed, but uh, I certainly understand the frustration of Mayor Eisenberger and, and his council about the la- what appears, appears to be the lack of progress on the issue and that, that go stations are being built without knowledge of when, in fact, the all-day service will be implemented. My frustration is simply this, because it's a legitimate point. Okay, I get that, that, that there's a problem here with CN, and, and CN says, well, we just can't give up here. We, we, you know, we've got a business to run, as, and I get that. But, you know, the province should be talking to engineers or somebody who simply say, well, here's another way you can do it. Uh, and it may be really expensive. I, I don't know that. I don't know that there's another way. I'm not an engineer. But there's a solution someplace, and nobody seems to want to talk about another solution. You know, and, and you think with technology today yeah. and, and the increased use of technology and the improvement of technology, you know, it could be an application of some form of technology that would manage the traffic that would allow the all-day go service. I, I don't know. I'm no expert on it, and I shouldn't be sort of waxing poetically about it because I'm, I'm not the expert. Bring in the engineers. Bring in the creative people. And do you need to add uh, a track or two? I don't, I don't know. Is there the capacity to add a track or two? It's a challenging circumstance, but there is that pinch point west of the Aldershot Station as you go into, go into Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Well, something should be done about it, and maybe we'll get good news out of us in 2018. That would be nice. Uh, a lot of things I want to talk about. Numbers, of course, 905-645-3221, start 9900. Uh, your questions, your comments for Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing. Uh, you had a couple of meetings about the Meridian Quarry. This has been a rather contentious issue for some time. Yeah, just to give some background on this particular issue, um, Meridian, or the predecessor companies to Meridian, have, have had a license for extraction of shale since 1972 in Aldershot. Uh, just west of, of the Tyandaga developments. And uh, in any event, they've had this permission for, since 1972, and they've had three cells. They've had a western cell and a central cell and an eastern cell. They have not gone to the eastern cell yet, but they're getting ready to go to the eastern cell as they've finished extraction in the center and west cells. The, the, west, or the east cell adjacent to West Haven Drive and some businesses in the Fernhill School um, represents 38% of the quarry, and it represents 25 years of extraction activity in shale that contributes to a brick plant that Meridian built uh, almost 20 years ago for $60 million to process all the shale, to turn it into shale brick, uh, that supplies 50%, 50% of the market in southern Ontario for brick. So this is a, a significant uh, operation. So um, back in 2015, uh, Meridian expressed, uh, well, advised the residents of when they're going to be planning to remove trees and do extraction. There's been a lot of dialogue with residents, and certainly I've been part of a couple meetings this week uh, with Meridian, as well as the uh, Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry and the Ministry of of, uh, Environment and Climate Change, along with MPP Eleanor McMahon, uh, getting some understanding about how this, you know, will uh, proceed. So uh, Meridian has uh, posted studies this week, a human health study, a noise impact study, and a dust study. 
Um, they posted it on their website this week, which is Aldershot Quarry. Uh, .ca. So all the information is there for residents to uh, uh, to connect with. Uh, one of the meetings I had yesterday with Eleanor McMahon and the representatives of Meridian was trying to uh, make the information that's provided, trying to provide it uh, in, in a more layman's terms. Uh, because when you read these very detailed analytical studies, it's really hard to get some sort of a uh, conclusion. So I think a lot of the information needs to be uh, simplified and into layman's terms so people can understand it. And ongoing, there needs to be uh, a, a mechanism for ongoing dialogue with residents as the extraction takes place. So just uh, because it's, it's, it's a very sensitive issue. Residents are concerned uh, about the health impact yeah. and, and the noise impact, as am I. And I certainly don't want this to proceed if there's going to be health issues. But do you have oversight over this? In we other do words, not have oversight for this. This is a provincial thing. This is a provincial matter. Because we went through with this in the Hamilton area in, in Flamborough right. a couple of years ago. And you know that story, of course. That went on for years and years and years. And the frustration that local councils always have in these circumstances is that it's not their not their call. Right, they can have input into it and say, "Hey, we think this is great," or "Hey, we don't think it's so good." But ultimately, it's the province that's going to make the determination. It is the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry that is the licensing agent or the regulator um, for for extraction and aggregate extraction uh, in the province of Ontario, and they've got a delicate balancing act to manage the need for uh, aggregate and shale in this case, to, to provide bricks to 50% of the marketplace in, in southern Ontario, as well as be a protector of the environment and protect um, residents. How has and the city changed in, in the years? And in other words, now with this development, this proposed development, uh, how close are people to this operation and how, how, how impacted are they going to be by that? Well, the, uh, there's an or is, area that, or is that a contentious point? Well, I guess it depends on your perspective yeah. how well there, how how much impact there will be. Uh, there certainly will be a, a reasonable setback anywhere from, and I want to get it right, anywhere from 50 meters to 150 meters, and I believe those are the numbers um, between extraction activity and the fence line of people's homes. Um, the plan is that they would not remove all the trees at once. There was original discussion to remove all the trees at once, but now they're focusing on specific areas. So the first area they're looking at is as far away from the homes as possible, and they would remove trees and extract and then do rehabilitation when they're finished and move on to remove trees and extract from other areas. So they're, they're planning to do it in a progressive way as opposed to doing the removal of trees all at once. And what's the time frame? When does it's a, it's a twenty-five year? Uh, it's a twenty to twenty-five year process. Well, when, when's the ministry going to rule on this? So uh, there's no ruling to be made. The the uh, Meridian has the permission. They have okay. a license to uh, remove trees. They have released all their most recent studies, and and right now the plan is for Meridian to to give sixty days for people to review the studies that were just released and put on the website this week before they start removing trees in this one particular section. You know, there's, there's, there's a number of people that would like to see the quarry stop completely. I don't know how that can take, take place. Uh, the permission has been in place for, for decades. Uh, and as long as Meridian does what they're supposed to do and the health impacts are, are non-existent, and they do the monitoring that they're supposed to do, and they do what the regulators want them to do. Um, I don't believe there's anything that can be done to stop this. Having said that, uh, the Tyndaga Environmental Coalition has put forward uh, an application to the Environmental Commissioner of Ontario to do a review uh, of the particular decision that was made to allow uh, extraction. So the Ministry of Natural Resources, or through the Environmental Commissioner, has 60 days to respond. As they say in the business, more to come on this issue. There is certainly more to come. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Mayor's Town Hall, Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring is with us here in studio. I know what I wanted to ask you about. I made a mental note to this because I had uh, Ron McCurley on uh, the other day uh, about the big announcement that was going on uh, for the Center for Climate Change Management. Uh, It's uh, really another collaboration between the cities of Hamilton and, and Burlington. No, I'm very pleased, very excited about this. Uh, We had an announcement last Friday, as you're aware, Bill, at at Mohawk College. So this is a a partnership relationship between the city of Hamilton, city of Burlington, and Mohawk College uh, with a check from the provincial government for $1.2 million. So 
Uh, this is fantastic. You know, Mohawk is doing great work on sustainability. Uh, they are building an, a new center um, for this climate change management uh, that will be net carbon neutral. So they're using all the technology that's out there that can actually uh, result in buildings that uh, are net carbon neutral and do not contribute uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And I look at the great work that the city of Hamilton has done and the city of Burlington have done with regard to uh, mitigation of climate change and adapt adaptation of climate change. Well, now we're going to be coordinating efforts and, 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 and sharing best practices and uh, you know, recognizing a city of half a million people and a, and a city of 185,000 people, um, almost 700,000 people and a, and a college with, a, I forget how many students. Um, this is a great relationship. And of course, uh, the, the key part of it is that it's going to be citizen-led. Uh, the way the Bay Area, Bay Area Restoration Council yeah. was led by yeah. by citizens. And I credit, uh, as I did last Friday, I credit Mayor Fred Eisenberger for the idea because he came to me, he suggested it, and I thought it was fantastic. And we took it to our individual councils, and we got the unanimous support of both councils, uh, connected with Mohawk, and we both uh, uh, had a number of meetings with uh, the Ministry of the Environment and Climate Change. And uh, we're thrilled um, that we have this development. So uh, we're excited. It's, it's going to be great to see what we can do together with regard to green technology, sustainable technology around building and retrofitting buildings and, and, and transportation and, and, uh, and other pieces as well. But this is another example of the, uh, the growing list of collaborations between these two cities, not just a, a lot of them on environmental issues, but transportation, a lot of the key things you've talked about, uh, working together as, 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 uh, as one unit, really, with respect for each other's uh, you know, autonomy within the, the communities, et cetera, but understanding that there's a lot of linkages and, and, and a lot of, uh, of, of, of synchronicity between the two cities. Well, there's certainly a lot of linkages, a lot of historical relationship. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad worked in Hamilton. We lived in Burlington, and I went to McMaster, and, and so on. So I started my career in Hamilton. I mean, there's all sorts of stories like that. Um, we have people that live in Hamilton, work in Burlington, and, and vice, vice versa. So uh, and there's companies oh, come on, in Burlington. Burlington gets all their mayors from Hamilton. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing, but, I mean, I know Rob, of course, Rob McIsaac grew up in this area. Cam Jackson spent some right. time in, in Hamilton. Yeah, absolutely. For, and absolutely. going down the list yeah. here. Yeah. No, so we have this, this – uh, uh, long relationship, and so it makes sense for us to to leverage uh, the work that we've done uh, individually, collectively, and as you say, build these build this synergistic relationship. And certainly, climate change is a is the issue is the issue of this generation and generations to come. And it only makes sense that we would collaborate in this manner. You know what's uh, really great about this, and we've seen this happen now with Mohawk and previously with McMaster is the important role that the educational institutions are playing, almost in an economic development role in collaboration with cities. Oh, no, absolutely, absolutely. Mohawk is, is very involved with advanced manufacturing, and I know our Burlington Economic Development Corporation work very closely with them. Um, our, our Economic Development Corporation brings in international students from Mohawk and brings them on a bit of a tour of Burlington, mm -hmm. so encouraging them to consider uh, where they might want to start their businesses or where they might want to work or where they might want to live uh, when they're finished their, uh, uh, their education. So Mohawk is doing great work on, on all sorts of technological fronts, advanced manufacturing, um, um, 3D processing, um, or 3D printing, I should say, um, and then this whole climate change actions uh, management center. Um, no, they're doing great work. But this is, a, as I talked about with Ron McCurley last week when the announcement was made, this actually acts as a magnet, I guess, for, for the potential for future growth and investment in the cities because you're training people uh, in Mohawk College through this program that are going to be well-versed and well-heeled and, and capable of doing these sorts of things. In other words, they're, when they're finished their, their, their programs at Mohawk, they're going to go out there. But we also become a center of excellence for companies that may want to locate here because of that. Oh, absolutely. And I think with Mohawk's uh, work on, on climate change, you know, we're creating the opportunity for the low-carbon economy uh, to develop and develop more quickly than it might other words. Um, there's great opportunities uh, in lowering greenhouse gas emissions from an economic front. There are so many different uh, technologies that are available. I met a gentleman this morning who, uh, just, just by chance, uh, who's in the business of helping retrofit aging apartment buildings and help them become more 
energy efficient and lower their greenhouse gas emissions and their carbon footprint. So I'm hoping that we're going to see some good work, and I know we're going to see good work uh, come out of this this collaboration with the city and Mohawk College that will see uh, the creation of new technologies that can be applied and create a commercial value uh, and can be you know, thriving in the Bay Area and attract new employees and attract new customers and, and create uh, create prosperity. But it's uh, it's another great news story. It, it's been a pretty good 2017 for the city of Burlington when you look at those collaborations, a very successful Bay Area Economic Summit earlier in the year. Uh, of course, you, you got the uh, the innovation uh, program up and running uh, that's happening, and this fits right into that that, that whole genre that you're, you're oh, moving into. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'll be presenting my State of the City address on February the 1st at the uh, Burlington Convention Center, which is hosted by the Burlington Chamber of Commerce. And a big part of my focus will be on the economic development in the city of Burlington. We are thriving. We are thriving. I had a brief discussion yesterday with Frank McEwen, our executive director of of BEDC, and there's great things that have happened and great things that they're working on that uh, we're uh, we're, uh, ahead of target as far as new job creation in Burlington this year. No, we're... uh, we're in good shape, and uh, it's going to be exciting in 2018 as well. With uh, Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring, one of the more controversial issues that you dealt with this past year uh, had to do with a pilot project on, on New Street. Uh, I know you got a lot of input, maybe a little more than you wanted, on, on this project, and councillors uh, were I, I, well, split, I think, to a certain extent. I mean, I heard very varied opinions from some of your council colleagues about exactly what to do, but you did go ahead. Well, it was a 6-1 vote to do it. So yeah. It was a 6-1 vote to, to do it, and, and I was somewhat reticent at, at the committee level when we had the discussion, and I preferred a different track, but recognizing that five of my colleagues wanted to go down that path, I said I, I would go with them, but I knew. I knew there would be public black, backlash. Oh, I knew. I, I, I got sure. a lot of emails <coughs> about this. I got phone calls saying, you know what they're doing out here? Yeah. This is and, New Street, for and, heaven's sake. And I got to tell you, Bill, I, you know, I'm a member of the Burlington YMCA, and shortly after the the road diet was implemented and, and uh, we put on the cycle lanes on New Street. I'm at the Y and I'm, I'm stretching after a, a, a vigorous workout and uh, I'm stretching on the ground and there was like five or six people that I knew in the stretching area and one person raised the issue with me. With me. Then they all raised the issue with me. Uh, so I knew, I knew that there would be a lot of uh, concern and backlash. So where we are now is where I wanted to go originally was this. So we're, we're going back to the way the road was in the spring. We're going to go back to the, to the four lanes. But included in our 2019 to 2028 uh, budget, we're going to look at the prospects of putting in cycle tracks um, that are physically separated from the sidewalk, physically separated from the road, specifically for bikes between Guelph Line and Burlock. Per local on See, that's, we're look that's at that. the way I think they should be built. I, I believe so too, but we're going to look at that in in um, collaboration with the work that's being run uh, done right now, developing a new cycling master plan. So that cycling master plan will be done uh, in the spring, and that will be the uh, guiding uh, document that defines how we should grow our cycling infrastructure uh, going forward. So it may not be the priority for New Street. It may be something else. Um, but we've at least got a placeholder in the 2019 to 2028 capital budget and forecast uh, for consideration of a significant amount of dollars for cycling infrastructure. Now, when you do a pilot project such as this, there was a, a, an end date. You knew this was going to come up yep. at this time of year. Uh, how, what kind of feedback are you getting? Was it a successful project? Did you did you, did it serve as a template for something else, or is it just? Uh, do you look back at this and say, "Wish we hadn't gone there." Um, no, I think we learned something. I, I think we learned um, what the impact is on traffic when you, in this particular case, New Street, when you apply this this type of approach. And, you know, the vast majority of the time, there was no issue as far as delay. What, on it the wasn't road. as draconian as everybody predicted? It, it was just around the peak period. 24-hour gridlock on New Street? Yeah, no. I heard it, those it stories. It, it, <laughs> it didn't happen. It, it was never an issue during the peak period in the morning or a minor issue, if at all. And it was the peak period in the afternoon when the QEW is backed up like it is whenever it's backed up. It always uh, clogs the streets in the city of Burlington. And it particularly clogged New Street because we only had one travel lane in each direction. So uh, it did take a little longer to go along New Street between uh, Walker's Line and Guelph Line when you're going westbound uh, during the afternoon peak. But... uh, 
that was that was the impact. There was an increase in the number of cyclists. I believe there was like a twenty five percent increase in the number of, of cyclists, um, which but it was a very small number. It was like you know forty went to uh, forty went to fifty five or something like that. Like it wasn't it wasn't huge, and our staff felt at the end of the day. It, it really wasn't a bad thing for the cars, as much as some people might beg to differ. Uh, but it really wasn't a great thing for increasing cycling either. And recognizing we're doing the cycling master plan work now, and this stretch that we had for the road diet pilot didn't go anywhere after, you know, after mm-hmm. Walker's Line. There wasn't the, the the connection that made it desirable for people to use. And I'm, I'm a strong believer of when you want to have cycling infrastructure on roads that are 50 kilometers an hour or more speed limit, you need to have physical separation if you want to appeal to a, a, a wide swath of people that want a bike. Not everybody is an, <clears throat> an, an expert cyclist. Uh, exactly. And, and I like that idea of a physical barrier. And when I've looked at pictures of what other communities have done, and Vancouver comes to mind because they've been doing this for quite some time, they make it look great. I mean, they have planters along the way there, and there is a, a physical separation between the traffic lane and the bike lane. And, exactly. and, and painting a line on the road just doesn't cut it as far as I'm concerned. It, it, one comment I made when we had the discussion is, you know, it's interesting that we put up sidewalks everywhere in our city, everywhere, and uh, and sometimes where people don't want them, but we put we put sidewalks. And nobody measures how many pedestrians use the sidewalk and whether it was a good use of taxpayers' dollars. We just recognize that in urban communities, sidewalks are a necessary part of the urban infrastructure. Well, guess what? Cycling infrastructure is a necessary part of being a city. You need to provide um, uh, infrastructure for a wide variety of people who, who will cycle if they have safe infrastructure. And it's just something that we should be doing automatically in communities. Well, and it makes all kinds of sense. And we're having that debate here in Hamilton on an ongoing basis. And I know you've read about some of the concerns on on some of the streets, especially in the downtown core. But uh, I think we all have to get over the fact that, uh, you know, the the mindset for the longest time was, I want to get in my car and go from point A to point B as fast as I can through the city. Uh, and I get that. I'm 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 of that mind sometimes when I'm in a hurry to get someplace. But you got to remember that there are other people that need to get from point A to point B. Some of them are going to walk. Some of them are going to be biking. And and the, you have to make allowance for them at the same time. Absolutely, you need to invest appropriately in in, in transit as well. So you know, and when you look at Burlington, we're a population of 183,000 people. We do not have a target yet for 25 years. We will within 18 months or so, or or, or 20 months. Um, but the region is going to grow from 780,000, meaning Halton region, 2 million people. And Burlington has to accept our share of the growth. So if we grow from 185,000 to 235 or 245,000, so that's a lot more people. Um, we don't have the capacity to really increase the number of roads that we have in our road network. So if we don't do something differently, we're just going to have more and more Gridlock. We need to create the opportunity for people to cycle and for people to, to walk and people to take transit. We, we, we need to make it delightful for people to use alternative forms of transportation, and we are not there yet. Speaking of money, and, and all discussions about municipal politics eventually gets around to money, uh, you uh, okayed your, your capital budget for uh, 2018. We uh, did. What are, what are the priorities? So it, there's $69 million in our capital budget for, uh, for 2018, $690 million over the 10-year period. Uh, the big focus is roadways. Uh, we have a infrastructure levy we've been adding to the tax base every year, and the, the big focus is roadways. The second focus is, uh, uh, is buildings, and the third focus is, uh, is parks and open space uh, and, and recreational spaces. So that's our major focus, as well as stormwater would be number four. Um, but one of the big projects coming up, I should point out, Bill, because it does affect uh, listeners in the water down area of Hamilton, is that in 2019, uh, it's in our forecast, which is over a year from now, to widen Waterdown Road mm-hmm. um, from Waterdown all the way down to uh, to Plains Road in Burlington, or actually to the to the 403. Recognizing all the growth that has taken place in Waterdown, uh, we need to provide the connection to the south part of the region and to connect to the Aldershot Go Station. And we want to thank uh, the uh, City of Hamilton Council in the development industry. Uh, for agreeing to pay for it because Hamilton's paying for 95% of the cost to widen the road on Waterdown Road. It would be a $19 million project, and most of that money comes from development charges as a result of development 
in the Waterdown area. But the counselors out there have been asking for this uh, for, yes. for years now. Yeah, your counselors have been asking yeah. for it. Yes, ab- absolutely. And uh, as much as we've been a little resistant to widen roads in Burlington, the good news is that the city of Burlington taxpayers are not paying for the 95% of the cost. But that's that's one of those improvements, uh, road road improvements. It just has to happen. It has it to happen. So it's going to go ago. from two lane to a four lane uh, paved section, but it will be painted for three lanes initially, so center left turn lane, and then can be expanded to complete four lanes as warranted in the future. But sadly, most of the other stuff is, is the, the money for capital budget. When you say roads, uh, it's it's fixing the roads that we've got. I mean, it's fixing the roads we got. Exactly. Uh, th- you you know, we talk about the Hamilton infrastructure deficit. Burlington's facing the same problems. Yeah, no, we're facing the same challenges. We 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 are willing to add one point two five percent, in fact, one and a half percent tax rate increase every year, simply to deal with our infrastructure gap. And we expect that we're going to be able to deal with our gap within the next twenty years and actually. Um, be where we should be. So we're making progress each and every year. The gap started out about 140 million. It's down to about 128 million now. And we're making progress at chipping away the gap every year because we're targeting money every year to to increase the amount of money that we put to our infrastructure. So cities are doing something about the infrastructure gap. I guess I know some provincial politicians are saying, well, you know, you just want more money from us. Uh, They're trying to do what they can about this. But are we ever going to get to the point in all these trips you make to Ottawa and to Queen's Park, uh, to, on behalf of, of the city and, and other cities in this province, for that matter, uh, where we have like the American model, where there is a consistent cash flow from from federal and state governments that cities can count on every year, knowing that that's what we're going to get. You know, we get uh, both Hamilton and Burlington gets money from the provincial gas tax yeah. and the federal gas tax. Uh, in Burlington's case, it's only two point two million dollars at provincial, not in a similar amount uh, federally. So it's it's not. It's not a lot of money for us. It'll be a lot more for you in, in Hamilton. Um, but we need more sustainable funding like that. Uh, you know, the, the federal and provincial governments introduce all these different programs for this initiatives, for green infrastructure, for, for recreational infrastructure, um, for this and that. Why not figure out a way to give us more ongoing, sustainable, predictable funding that we can rely on every year as opposed to waiting for new programs to come up all the time? That's a major frustration for me. And, and I think we need more sustainable funding. And we talked about in August at the AMO meeting, AMO board and, and executive passed a direction to look at a 1% tax rate increase for sales tax across the province, specifically to go to the infrastructure gap in municipalities. But of course, the province uh, and the progressive conservatives and the NDP all said no to that particular initiative. So if it's not that, then what will it be? Well, that's the thing. And there's a provincial election coming up that will have an opportunity uh, to ask the leadership of the parties what their plan is to support municipalities for that ongoing, predictable, sustainable funding, because I don't know what it is yet. Well, and instead of saying you can't do this, okay, tell us what we can do then. Because there is a model that's working. As a matter of fact, uh, we're one of the few G8 nations that don't do this sort of thing, and it's about time that uh, there was a better commitment. Anyway... Uh, and that I'm sure will change everybody's minds if they had just heard what you and I were just talking about. <laughs> uh, we're out of time. Thanks so much for coming in today, and thanks so much for uh, for a great 2017. It's been a, a pleasure having you in here on a consistent basis uh, uh, with the town halls. Uh, all the best to uh, to your council, and of course you and your family for a, a great Christmas and a happy New Year. Well, Bill, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to connect every month uh, with your listeners, and on behalf of uh, the council, the city of Burlington, and our staff, I do want to wish everybody. Uh, a very Merry Christmas and a wonderful and happy and uh, uh, successful and prosperous uh, 2018. So thanks for the relationship. See you next year. Thank you. Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.